Welcome to the first episode of Maastricht Law Talk, the podcast about comparative European law named after the beautiful city of Maastricht, where the famous Treaty of Maastricht was signed in 92. My name is Benedict, and today we will talk about what is law and have fun. Every year in Ontario, thousands of people are seriously injured in car or slip and fall accidents. Recovery can be overwhelming and for many, a financial nightmare. Sir, drop your weapon, put your hands on your head and get down on the ground. You are going to be placed under arrest. We can help them get the financial compensation they deserve. That preventing a breach of the peace is a legitimate state interest. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. I'm here today to talk about what is law, a very broad thing, um, with Bram Ackermanns, he is an associate professor in European private law at Maastricht University and obtained his PhD on the principle of numerous clauses in European property law. Hello, Bram. Hi. Thank you very much for being here. Oh, it's my great pleasure. You are, as just said, uh, a professor here at Maastricht, but you also studied um, here in Maastricht. Did you do both bachelor's and master's here? There was no bachelor and master. I'm, oh, you do? I'm old. Oh, there was before the change. Yes, okay, exactly. That, that, that's what I thought. So it was a one four-year degree, and then uh, I spent a little bit of it I spent in Stellenbosch in South Africa. All so right. The last seven months of the degree I, I did elsewhere. Okay. But that's not all. You are not only an associate professor, but you also do next to this professorship. Um, you work as an editor for the Review of European Property Law, and you are a leading member of the Master European Private Law Institute. Well, you know, we have to be busy. Otherwise, uh, we get bored. At least I get bored. <laughs> well, I think then you aren't bored right now. You have enough to do. Oh, yeah. No, of you course. Do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's perfect. Fun. No, I love my job. It's Are fun. you teaching right now? Yeah, I am. I'm teaching property law at the moment. It's, but that's, you know, this is the f most fun part of the job is that you <laughs> get to work with young people uh, and get to talk every year with new students and you get to ex explain them about your field and, you know, about what you like best. And it's, it's awesome. What is law? Well, if we knew that question, no, I mean, law is for me is a set of, you know, it's the, it's the rules of society. It's the way in which we decide to organize ourselves. And then for me, it's more about the, the, the decisions and the choices that we make to make the, to get to that um, system, to get to that law, than about the hardcore rules themselves. Okay, but how, how is law connected to morality, if we look at that? A lot of, when I talk to someone, what is law, right? Then most, for most people, laymen, they would directly go into the criminal field, and then they would go into, you have the morals there, you can't kill someone, etc. But is this the same? What would you say? Mor is, uh, is law moral? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. But for me, that's what I mean. Th those are the, the, the thoughts and the reasonings behind the rules. And I think their morality plays a, plays a very, very important role. And we don't decide just now. And what the rule should be. There's usually a, a thought process and then, of course, also a legislative process. But really, to start with a thought process that goes before. And there, morality plays a fantastically interesting and important role. Um, I mean, criminal laws, I, I guess, although that's not my field, but I think this is a very good example, is we, we decide, all of us, that murder is immoral. And therefore, we decide, all of us together, that we, we make rules that say, thou shall not kill. Uh, in whatever way, shape, or form. And we all say, in, in the end, um, the state, or we collectively punish someone who um, uh, behaves immorally here. 
So you're saying there's also law without having, that's a different discussion, we'll come to that later, but without having a law in the technical sense, in yeah, the sense sure. of in written. Yeah, I don't see that problem at all. Yeah, there can be law between you and me. Uh, we, we can we can write that down, but it can also be something that organically comes into being. Um, you know, it, it's the way uh, that it, it's a standard that sets our, be that, that regulates or that determines our behavior. This somewhat reminds me, I think, um, when I started studying law, that was uh, one of the things that came up very quickly, um, the Nuremberger processor. Um, so w what happened there was that the um, Nazi officials were prosecuted for crimes that didn't really exist at that point. Is that the area what you're talking about? Well, I mean, so the th th that's a little bit problematic in the sense <laughs> that you, 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 you make the rules after the, the game has been played in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but this, I think you would all, you know, I think everyone would agree. These are, these were very, very special circumstances. And sometimes, you know, we can't predict, um, completely what is going to happen and sometimes we have a set of rules but they are interpreted or used in a very different way and then we need to correct this afterwards and uh, well I, I'm not sure the Nuremberger Prozess are, are, are um, uh, 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 the, the, the most clean and best example of that <laughs> but we certainly do this all the time I mean you have yeah. reconciliation co uh, committees in, in Africa um, you have uh, 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 the international war tribunals, um, where this sometimes happens. You know, th these are complex and complicated matters. Um, but this is definitely, I would then say, where morality shows itself, and where you see that there's this bottom layer of in our society of of morality, and that manifests itself then. And if there are not rules at this moment to uh, deal with that, then we make them. But but isn't one of the ideas behind law, at least the codified version of a law? Um or <laughs> case law, and, uh, however you want to call it, that there you have legal certainty. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's 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 that's. I've, I think in ninety nine point nine percent of the cases, that's how it is. Yeah. But here you have a a really highly exceptional situation um, where loads of people have done things um, that they shouldn't have done, um, where we need to respond, and so there are the pressure to respond. And where the pressure to do something in in a way where you could say where the public opinion is is that this was so immoral that we, the law needs to respond as well, and we as society need to respond, and then we take the law and we use the law um, uh, as a measure to do that. But this should really probably stay in those circumstances um, in which the outcome or this is what did was very extreme. Um, so you, we shouldn't get into the habit of no. Applying no, new that, rules all that the time. I think is the rule of law. Okay. And so behind law, I mean, there's the, the rule of law, meaning that you you should be able to know what to expect. You should be able to know what rules that you should behave by. And it would be a, a, a very, I'd say, unregulated society. And we would have, I think, most Western European societies um, would have problems with that if we start making rules or we start setting rules um, that punish behavior of people afterwards, but which was completely legal at the time when it happened. We already mentioned, or I already mentioned the legal certainty part, um, but what other reasons are there for laws? Do we really need law as a society? Do you think without laws it would be, <laughs> I don't know, just not working out right now? 
Oh, that's I think this you're touching Benedict here on a on a mm-hmm. on a very old old discussion. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in a way this is also connected to the discussion about what we call natural law and positive law. Yeah, uh, and natural law being you know the, the natural law theory saying that there are certain rules that we all abide by, regardless whether or not mankind decides to write this down or to regulate this. Um, or positive law that used, it, it tends to say yeah, there is no law before we de- we decide that there is. I think those are two extremes. Um, it, it's a good question. I, I don't think so. In the way in which I see law and the way in which I see this, as, like I just described, the role that law plays in society, I think even if you put um, you know, 10 people on a deserted island, um, they will still figure it out in terms of rules. <laughs> you know, they will have to set up rules, otherwise it becomes a Lord yeah. of the Flies type of uh, uh, scenario. Um, so they will have to divide the island and they will have to decide um, what belongs to whom, um, how they will trade, if they will trade. They can tr- start off maybe deciding we will do it all collectively. It's a beautiful idea, but at some point they're going to fight. Mm. And when they fight, they will divide it. And when they divide it, they will basically establish a, a primary, let's say, primary constitutional law or primary property law in a way. And to say, this part of the island is mine, this part of the island is yours, and then we'll take it from there. What importance does property law play? How ah, well, but this, you're asking, you're, <laughs> <laughs> you should Obviously. know, you're, you're asking a property lawyer, so it's the most important thing in the whole <laughs> yeah. world, Benedict. Of but you know, jokes aside, I mean, property law is, it, it has always been a central focus point in these discussions. And the reason for that is that the objects that we're talking about, land, tra- traditionally where property law deals with land, which was the most valuable thing anyone can have. So property law plays a crucial role in Roman law. Property law plays a crucial role in the law of the church. Um, property law plays a crucial role in the feudal system. Um, property law, and, and particularly the lack of property law or the disorganization of property law, is one of the primary reasons the French Revolution broke out. Um, so to ask a property lawyer whether property law is important, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's obvious, yes. Um, and property law has always played you know, a crucial role in the discussion about, for, for example, the natural law, positive law mm-hmm. discussion. Uh, you have, uh, you know, very famous natural lawyers. John Locke is a very interesting um, example. And Locke used to say, uh, you know, the, the ownership is a is a God given right, and natural lawyers, t- and particularly in those days, tended to you know say, take divine inspiration. Yeah, uh, we would do this after enlightenment. Perhaps we would say this a little bit differently. You can also say you know th- these are pre existing, or sometimes the Americans call this pre political rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and Locke said, you know, y- y- God has given you yourself, and therefore you own yourself, and you also own your labor. And if you then go somewhere let's say America, where no one owns any land before you, at least you do not you do not recognize that anyone owns land before you, and you yeah. mix the land with your labor, it becomes yours. I don't need any law for that. I don't need any agreement for that. That's the natural state of being. And there, it's, it's just an example of how property law plays a, a crucial part in this, in this um, what is also called a libertarian type of reasoning. But who then is a legal subject i mean we 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 pretty much established that the we the people are legal sub, sus, uh, uh, subject but um are there others well that's a very interesting question i mean it it, it depends on how you look at this i mean if we if i take the natural law positive law you know <laughs> divide again um you could say legal we are all legal subject everything everyone in the world is a is a legal subject but there are those who argue that not only people 
uh, not only persons should be legal subjects. You also have, of course, a, a big stream, um, particularly nowadays, of, of, of authors that argue that also legal persons should mm-hmm. be subjects. Uh, from a, you know, the traditional way is to say also a, a company can contract. But I think nowadays this has much more become much more an important discussion. Can legal legal persons, can corporations, be subject to human rights in the same way as we are? And okay. can they also violate human rights in the same way as we are? I think that this is where that that's the reason why this discussion is so important. So, so that you take the corporation itself and not the CEO yeah. that is responsible exactly. for certain acts. exactly. And then you, you know, think about H and M or Mongo yeah. or um, you know any of the these clothing manufacturers that um, uh, either willingly or usually usually not without no how should I say this usually without knowing it explicitly. Uh, but somewhere in their product- production chain, there's human rights violations. Yeah, I, I'm not suggesting immediately that H&M knows exactly. No, but we you know, know is, that in the textile yeah, they, area. Yeah, they, they contract with the textile yeah. industry and somewhere along the lines, you know, there's child labor or forced labor or something um, 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 like that. Does that mean, and I think that's a very important question about what is law, does that mean that the law should also hold the company? accountable not only the persons who do that because i think we can all agree we are all subjects of the law yeah but can should companies also be subject of the law to um to go back into the property direction and a lot of my fellow students didn't find that very appealing when we had comparative criminal law for example um animals yeah I, I, was, I was thinking. I, I was thinking. Yeah. Should I say something about animals? I thought. Well, let me let me go the corporate route. You know, that's safer. Yeah. But so the the, yeah. the legal status, generally speaking, is an animal is an object. Yeah. Except in the Netherlands. Except in the Netherlands. Well, in the Netherlands, we changed the rules a couple of years ago. Um, we have this. There's a political party which is called the Animal Party, um, or the Partij voor de Dieren. We call it. So it's the party for animals, and they um, uh, proposed an amendment to the property law code of the Netherlands or the civil code where um, now you can no longer own an animal. But you can hold it. You can hold it. You can control it. It can still b- belong to you. But it's, this is very symbolic. Yeah, so the, exactly. It's just a technical yeah, term. But it, which... y- yes. But y- you have to understand, <clears throat> this is a deviation from the 2,500 years that go before <laughs> it. I mean, Roman yeah. law uh, mentions, for property lawyers, Roman law mentions land and then maybe some movable objects like cows and sheep. And maybe a plow that you use to 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 work the land, but that's all. That's the those I think are the only movable objects, okay. possibly that 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 any Roman law text would um, um, uh, would mention. And they they so so to take away animals from the circulation, so to say, from the circulation of of objects. That's it's it's symbolic, but it's also pretty spectacular. But on the other hand, maybe next to property law, we still have provisions that. At least protect those animals. Yeah. No, I mean right. this is a, it's a similar question. You know, our uh, fundamental rights. Let's not call them then human rights, but fundamental mm-hmm. rights. Are they are animals also subject to those, and can they you, can they also be protected by those fundamental rights? And uh, this is a very very important discussion. Um, uh, you know, what happens if you put you know twenty five thousand chickens in a very very small room and you know yeah mass produce their either their flesh uh, you know to, for for human consumption or or, or eggs yeah um, you know aren't you not, are you not then violating um, um, uh, these subjects of the law if you assume that animals are also subjects of the law and they're not just objects um, then what rights are they capable of of having and again that's a question what rights do they have by themselves 
And what rights do we give them? That's the natural v positive law thing again. Okay, yeah. But but then uh, under the property law aspect again, um, the, the the fact that someone uh, something might be a living thing is that does that at all play a role? I, not to get too deep into that. I'm sure we will meet each other again to talk about comparative property law. Um, but. I mean, probably we two could agree that a chicken is a different thing than this microphone here. Yes, for sure. Morally speaking. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and that's why I, I am not too sure where I stand on the whole animal having animals having rights uh, debate. I'm, I'm just using it as an example, but yeah. I haven't decided yet where, where for myself where I think where I stand. So I'm, I'm just hoping to highlight, I think, what are, I, what are at least in my view, the important questions and what are the moral questions indeed um but then it, it, it this is a development that has taken place and the netherlands is a little bit ahead here by mm. by changing you know the traditional provisions in the civil code uh, but in most other countries um, animals are objects and you just own them and by owning them it means you can do with them whatever you want um except abuse them and yeah. when animals, but then of course the, the 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 law takes over, and again you have the the morality takes over, and when you have rules in your legal system against uh, the abusing of animals, um, you know that's a it's an example of how morality enters the law. You did mention Roman law several times already when it came to property law, um, which is very um, yeah important for uh, comparative lawyers in general for pretty much everyone on the continent. Um, can you maybe elaborate a bit more on that? What do I mean by it is important uh, for the continent and maybe not for the UK or England and Wales as an entity? It will be my great pleasure. I mean, the, the, the Roman law for civil lawyers, so for continental European legal systems, um, you know, Roman law is, the, is, is where it all started. This is where we start. Of course, there was ancient Greek society. Um, before that, and maybe Egyptian societies even before that, but the Romans did something special. They wrote down what they were doing. And they didn't write it down in terms of rules, but you have many writers over that course period, let's say 500 before Christ until 500 after Christ. Um, and so we go to the whole development of the Roman Empire. It becomes a, 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 a republic, and then it becomes a, a kingdom and a principate, and then an, a, 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 you, they have emperors. And so, But throughout that time, um, lawyers, or at least or philosophers or you know, important people, wrote down in Latin what they were doing, what were the rules of their time. And it is very, um, very case-based. So they would say, um, uh, if you have a cheese factory and your cheese factory um, emits smell, because of course it, you know, if, if you make cheeses, sometimes it, you know, uh, 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 it releases a scent that the neighbors might, be, uh, might not like, um, then the neighbor would have potentially an action and a legal remedy against that because if, the, if there was too much, let's say, smell pollution. Yeah. And they, they wrote that down. And then when the Roman Empire fell, we forgot all about it. <laughs> and there's in the law, you have this very, very early Renaissance. Um, we're talking the 1150s, where some of these Roman law texts are rediscovered. And so it's, it's, a, it's a legal renaissance earlier than the... Than, it led to a legal renaissance earlier than the one in art and, and etc. Because um, people in those... So in the 1150s, 1200s, started to study those rule, rules of Roman law and apply them to their time. 
And of course, you know, the society looked after the fall of the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire, and afterwards the Eastern Roman Empire. You know, it, 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 society looked completely different. And so they started to look at, okay, can we use that, that, that system of rules that the Roman lawyers used, can we use that to our society? And that we've actually been doing ever since. So when, after the French Revolution, when no law was written down, basically, Napoleon wanted to write down the law, the first thing he did, or the first thing part, people in the committee that he established did, was look back to Roman law. How did the Romans do it? Can we take the system that these Roman lawyers developed and can we apply this to our time? And the Germans, a hundred years later, did exactly the same. And they, over the course of those hundred years, so between the French Revolution and the German civil codes, um, so that's the 1st of January 1900, that basically united the German Germanic territories before that with one civil code, one legal system. Um, they also studied Roman law and they studied different texts of Roman law. This is why there are differences between French law and, and, and German law. But we all did this. And so... Because over time, more texts were becoming available. Exactly, or, and we were, they were discovered. Or, or did the French just choose the ones no. that they... No. no, no, there was no choice. So it's, it's, it is in particular the, the Institutes of Gaius, mm -hmm. um, who are very, very instrumental. They were discovered in between the French and the German um, works. And Gaius is a, is a uh, let's say, 400-something BC, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know this exactly. Yeah. But he's an early writer, whereas the French had access to the late writings and of course that the roman legal system also developed and so you have different interpretations of what is the law mm -hmm. and so in germany this whole what we call historical school developed and uh, from that historical school came a certain interpretation of roman law and we wrote that down in law books and that's why we, well there are civil codes and this is why we call these legal systems civil law systems now that and just to answer your question this is a lengthy answer i'm sorry but the 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 you're happy to elaborate okay. more. It's very interesting. <laughs> the, 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 uh, that did not happen in the common law countries, as we call them. So the Eng English-speaking countries, in a way. Eh? So England, okay. Ireland, Scotland, uh, the United States, and every other co colony, basically, that, that the English ever had. And so they did not do that. What did they do instead? So, well, I mean, they have their own legal system. They have a, what well, I already mentioned the term. They have common law, which means the law common to the people. It's customary law. It's a very interesting uh, concept. The idea is, it is the law that applies to you and me. And it's not written down. We just know what the law is. And if we have a conflict, we go to a court. And then the court decides you know, the law. They apply the law and they write down the law. Um, and so in common law systems, um, well, the law always exists. But the courts have a, have a very, very, very important role. Very different um, then in civil law systems, to what they call it, to find the law. That's how the English lawyers would say it. They find it and they describe it. And so you, you, they develop their own legal system, but they don't write it down in, 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 in codifications as we do. So do does that mean that there is nothing written down in the UK? Well, I mean, in, in the early common law, there was. the answer is, is, is no, there's nothing written down. <laughs> but, you know... When the English society moves from an absolute monarchy also to a system of parliamentary sovereignty, or at least a system of a parliament, what they now, I think now call a parliamentary monarchy. Mm -hmm. So you have the king, but you also have a parliament. Of course, the doctrine of sovereignty of parliament, that's what it's called, meant that what parliament decides to legislate will trump the common law. So it okay. will go before the common law. Um, but... They only do this, that's the understanding, in very specific cases. So the, 
the, the English parliament doesn't make civil codes. They don't make big you know, mm-hmm. codifications where, I mean, think about the German civil code or the <laughs> Dutch civil code or the French civil code. I mean, there are over 2,000 um, uh, articles or paragraphs, yeah. or whatever you want to call them. Um, but the English parliament legislates only on very specific issues. And for the rest, they leave the legal system to the common law. But would you already say that um, the current English system might be a somewhat of a mixed kind? Or is still... If, if you would have to compare the civil law here and then the common law there, um, or, or maybe also on the continent, did we arrive on a point that like, the distinction is st- still there maybe, but it gets tinier and tinier? And I understand that question. And uh, the answer is yes and no. Um, <laughs> the typical good. lawyer's answer here. Yeah, um, no, but the answer is yes and no, because yes, of course, over time, parliament needs to legislate. And parliament interferes. And there are, there are good reasons why a parliament would do so. Um, usually there are what we call social justice considerations. So they interfere to protect lessees or they interfere to protect consumers. Mm-hmm. Or, um, well, basically it is to interfere um, because they detect, a, let's say, a market failure, a legal market failure. So there's something that's not going properly and therefore parliament intervenes. And then usually for political reasons. So if it's a labor party in government, oh, okay. you would have much more social um, yeah. interventions, whereas if it's, if it's a Tory party, so a much more conservative party, you have much more inventions that favor business. And I mean, if it would have stayed with the courts completely, then you would have a less political approach to law. Yeah, in that way, yeah so that's right. the, but law is political. Yes, it's, of I course. Mean, law is about the choices that you, and this is where we started. I mean, law is about the choices that you make as a society, whether or not to, you know, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. What are we not going to do? And so the, the answer is no, in the sense that there is a difference between the civil law and the common law. But the answer is also yes, there is you know, much more similarities. Because, for example, through the process of Europeanization, we enforce, or at least the European Union makes legislation, and that needs to be implemented in a common law system as well. And that is not done by case law, that is done by legislation. Yeah. And when these are harmonizing measures... Um, yeah, in, the, in the traditional sense of the word, in a traditional European sense of the word, it means that the Netherlands needs to implement these, Germany needs to implement these, France needs to implement these, but the United Kingdom, of course, also. And that creates, well, it reduces the difference between civil law and common law. You, you said um, law is politics, which I would also agree on. Um, but when we look at the judges then, isn't there the, um, well, the rule that the judge just shouldn't really be um, how to describe that? I forgot the uh, specific term. Um, yeah, well, you, you use your own opinions or they yeah, do have to use them. Um, no, but you, but you want to say it, they're not politically appointed in a sense. So they're not there on, on behalf of a political party to decide. Yes, on, and yes. technically speaking, they shouldn't. No. No, but y- y- yes, I think that's true, Benedict. I mean, the, 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 but law, when I say law is political, I don't mean necessarily it's, it's a pol- party politics, yeah, yeah. but there are what we call legal political questions that are of extreme importance. You can't regulate everything. And even if you regulate certain things, you have choices. Um, you know, let's take contract law as an example. Do you protect the weaker party, the weaker contracting party, or do you create a system that's very, very favorable for business. Those are, I mean, I'm using extremes just to illustrate the point, but it makes a big difference. When you say freedom of contract, for example, that's one of these, you know, core principles of any legal system. When you say freedom of contract, how far does that freedom go? That's That's a legal political question. Do you say the party should do whatever they want? 
and whatever they are stupid enough to sign their name to, they are bound by the terms. Might of the be rather the common law approach. Yeah, right? that is a little yeah. bit like the common law mm-hmm. approach. I mean, a little. It, it is it's certainly the traditional common law yeah, approach. Okay. Yeah. And but now that we are discovering that in the contracting process there are also people um, that are worth protecting. Let's call them consumers. Yeah. Um, you know, when you buy a plane ticket from Ryanair and Ryanair puts all sorts of crazy things <laughs> in the terms and conditions, you may need to, you know, protect people against that. One, because they don't read any of the contract. Uh, if you conclu- if you buy a plane ticket online, you don't read through the whole terms and conditions before you click on agree. That's at least n- not many people do that. Let's put it like that. But you're still bound by the terms of that contract. Yeah. And so sometimes that's unfair. And when that's a legal political point. And when we decide legal politically that's unfair, then we interfere. And so we have rules that protect you against Ryanair or Amazon or whatever company that you contract with online, um, you know, to, to that, that they can't do that two crazy things. You already mentioned European legislation, um, which leads us to the point of the levels of law. We do have um, national law, we have Dutch law here, but then the European Union laws influence or even have direct effect to just like put that out <laughs> here in the Netherlands, but it might even get further. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is something we work on in Maastricht in particular. Mm-hmm. And there are other places where they do this too, but this is something where we, we focus on um, and we look at law as a as a multi-level legal order, we call it. So there are different levels at which rules exist or which at which the law exists. Um, for us, but this is a very, let's say, Maastricht way of explaining things. It's a Maastricht school, we call it sometimes. Um, you have you have the private parties. So it starts with you and I. If we a contract, we create rules between us. Mm-hmm. And then you have, so let's say local rules, let's say the, the, the par- party autonomy rules. Then you have, let's say, local rules, city rules, um, regional rules, national rules, and then European rules. And even beyond that, you have global rules. And it depends on what you are talking about, which rules exist and where it makes sense. Um, if you're talking about you know where to park your car and how much you should pay for that, it makes no sense for any global rule mm-hmm. um, uh, to be uh, 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 made in front uh, made about that. But if we're talking about let's say pollution um, or air pollution or pollution in water pollution is always a nice example. I think um, you know you take the River Maas, which takes a, you can hear from the city uh, the name of the city Maastricht takes a very important role here, but it comes all the way from France. And what if you know somewhere upstream someone pollutes the river? That creates all sorts of problems in other countries. The river doesn't take into account the law. Um, And so there it makes sense, um, perhaps to make regional agreements or even maybe European agreements. And there's another example I can give you. A space shuttle. Have you ever thought about how much money that costs to make? (laughs) Or a satellite. And if you send this into space... um, Someone needs to finance that. And of course, governments finance that. Uh, that's that's what we all know. Uh, but the governments don't necessarily spend that much money on it or don't have that much money on it. So they also have to borrow this from banks. Yeah. And so the, the banks that they deal with, let's say NASA deals with, they would do this under US law, under the one of the legal systems of the states in the United States. Um, but security rights needs to need to be created. On, the, on such a space shuttle or on a, on a satellite because the bank won't give you money if they don't get collateral um, um, uh, in exchange. And so we have an international convention, believe it or not. It's called the Cape Town Convention. It's a global, it's, a, it's an example of global law that deals with the enforcement of those security rights 
on planes, space, airplanes, space shuttles, uh, uh, satellites, uh, trains, uh, which we call, by the way, railway rolling stock. It's always a nice way to... Uh, it's a nice thing to say. Um, the, 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 because a plane can touch down somewhere, and if you haven't paid your, your dues to the bank, and your plane is in Tanzania... How, did, how does how should the bank know how to get you know they can how they would then seize the plane take possession of the plane if yeah. you don't pay that's what you that's the agreement that you made with the bank but which law applies there and what if the airline company finds this out and then quickly flies the the plane from Tanzania to Botswana where they, you know that the legal system is much more in their favor yeah so over time and we've been talking about that for 30 years I think we now have this Cape Town convention so we have global rules um, that help uh, 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 regulate and, and therefore enforce these these rights. Is that a merely property law convention, or is that well? I mean, the, I, no, no. I do know that it is. This about is a property, property law. This is a property law convention because you are asking a property lawyer to give an example. But no, th- sure, there but are, of course, other other I mean, aspects. Yeah, There's I mean, you only... also have uh, there's Hague conventions. The Hague is is has a. It's called the Hague Convention. Actually, it's a it's a center for private international law. Private international law, meaning where private laws, um, uh, uh, it, it's the private law parts that regulate how legal systems come into contact with mm-hmm. each other. And so you also have Hague conventions, for example. Those are also worldwide applicable uh, for children. You know, how to protect children or um, the last names of children. Or uh, this is a big issue, by the way, the last names of children. This in, is an in, important in issue. I mean, if, if a child is born in the Netherlands, it, yeah. it will have the last name of either the father or the mother. You can choose. Oh, but okay. if your yeah, child yeah. is born in Spain, it can have the last name of both the father and the mother. Mm-hmm. And if a child is born in other, I don't know exactly, in, in other countries, I mean, traditionally, it would always been the last the name of the father. Mm-hmm. Um and so this is important. And it, of course, creates... Then this is a nice example of private international law problems. It creates a problem if you have a last name uh, in Spain and then you move to Germany. And then you you go to the municipality to register and the German municipality says, well, I'm very sure you're Mrs. A, you're married to Mr. B, but your child is called B.A. And that's not po- no, And then they will say, they will say, is that possible? <laughs> and they might say that's not possible. Okay. And to avoid that, there's also global agreements um, to, to say, okay, but once that name has legally been given somewhere, you should recognize it. Let's not, you know, let's not overcomplicate matters. So would you generally agree on the statement that um, the, the, the more upper, like up it goes on this pyramid, the lesser rules there should be? So more regional than national, more national than European, more European than global. I'm not sure. I mean, this is I've I've this is again this is one of the more important most important <laughs> questions of our time. Um, I'm not sure. It depends on the problems. Yeah. Um, it depends on what you're talking about. Yes, I, I guess the law and economics scholars call this the economics of federalism, and we call this the federalism paradigm. And the federalism paradigm means that it, the idea is you you regulate as much as you can at the lowest possible level. Okay, and only where the costs of regulating at a you know doing it twice or maybe three times at the local level uh, that create costs for society, and when those costs increase, 
at some point you better take it up one level. So the principle of subsidiarity. Yeah, it's it, it's another way of operationalizing mm-hmm. the principle of subsidiarity. And subsidiarity meaning it, this is a Roman Catholic doctrine. I don't know <laughs> if you know that. Uh, this is a Roman Catholic doctrine that we've taken over in in EU law. I mean, it's used elsewhere. In South Africa, South African constitutional scholars, for example, also use the doctrine of subsidiarity. Mm-hmm. Um, subsidiarity meaning um, you do things at the lowest level. And only if you prove that you can do it at a higher level, that you can do it better at a higher level, you do it at a higher level. And that protects us. And I think that also naturally creates the situation, Benedict, that you sketch now. So you have more rules at a local level than at a level above, which again has more has, has more rules than the level above there, etc. I think that makes sense. But as globalization continues and the problems increase... I am not too sure that 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 can be maintained. To fight terrorism, to deal with the migration crisis, um, you know, to deal with the increased um, uh, mobility of people, to better regulate banks, to create a safer economy. Um, I mean, these are just a couple of examples. You know, I am not too sure that local rules and local solutions are always the best. Um, uh, that are always the best uh, uh, way to approach this. Sometimes it is good to sit together and see what can we do and what can we do well together. Law is a very po- powerful tool. Um, and what Montesquieu, um, and I think also John Locke, you already mentioned him, um, thought about that this shouldn't be solely a responsibility on, on the hand of one entity. This then led to the Trias Politica. Can you maybe expand on that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is a, these, are, these were wise men. Um, and with very, very good ideas. And Trias Politica suggests that you make a separation between the people who make the law and the people who apply the law. And this can either be, well, I mean, traditionally, that's why it's called Trias Politica. There are three. You have the executive branch, you have the legislative branch, and you have the judiciary mm-hmm. branch. But I think, you know, in, in many legal systems nowadays, the executive and legislative branch, they, they tend to be mixed a little bit. Um, uh, the, the best example being England, where the prime minister is also also has a seat in the House of Commons. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. You know, okay. So this yeah. d- 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 Parliament, from its representatives, then chooses p- people who will, f- over time, um, sit on the executive branch. Um, the best example of th- in this in execution is the United States, where you have the president as the um, executive branch, and you have Congress. So the House of Representatives and the Senate as um, uh, legislative branch. So that you have the head of government separated yes, from the... Exactly, exactly. But I think that that's parliament. important. Be- and it's important from a constitutional point of view because you need to decide who makes the law, who proposes it, and how are laws made, um, who gets to vote on it. And it depends on your country. Uh, you, as, you, as you know, Benedict, in Germany, um, you know, you, the Senate plays a very different role. I mean, you don't call it a Senate, um, but you have a second higher chamber of parliament, um, um, the Bundesrat, mm-hmm. uh, that represents the lender. So that's a, in a federalist um, uh, state. It makes sense that um, also the federal level, the, the lower federal levels are represented in the lawmaking process. And in the United States, this works in a similar way. The senators and the members of the House of Representatives all come from certain states. And depending on the population of the states, they have um, uh, uh, more or less representatives or more or less um, um, senators. But what I think these these guys, in particular Montesquieu, meant with the Trias Politica is that there should be a strict wall of separation then between the legislative executive branch on the one hand and then on the other hand, the judiciary. So because when it's, it's about maintaining the law, enforcing the law, then it would be very strange 
if the people who make the law are also the ones who decide on how it how it is to be applied. Yeah. And so they then said, Montesquieu then said, the judge is not is nothing more than what he calls the mouth of the law, the bouche de, la bouche de la loi, which um, doesn't work. No. <laughs> if you especially um, look in the common law direction or even in the civil law countries where the judges do have quite some power, especially in the Supreme Court area, yeah, um, this to is where legislate we, themselves. Exactly, and this is also where we hit on the, on the legal political aspect again. Because there is politics involved in this, particularly in the higher court levels. I mean, in Germany, the, um, the Supreme Court judges are mostly, I mean, they are appointed by government, and then most of them are also party members of each of the parties. That makes sense. And the same in the Netherlands and the same in every country, I think, <laughs> yeah. because these are such important um, uh, 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 um, these are such important positions but that's okay because the theory is that after a couple of years the party and the people who appointed that judge or justice we should say if it's a higher court justice we should say justice um, uh, the people that appoint such a justice will go out of power in government but yeah. the justice stays and so this is also how it works in the United States. I'm sorry I mean, to we, use so many U.S. examples. No, but that, that's totally fine. We, we did have, um, I mean, in, in January, uh, Justice Scalia passed. Uh, yeah. Until this very day, I think there is still no new um, judge on the Supreme Court. Um, no, but and, that also... And then you see how much power there is. Uh, well, well the, the, the judge that President Obama um, thought of is a very liberal judge. Thus, the Congress says, <laughs> not really, we're not doing that. Yeah, but this is a perfect example of trias politica. The executive power the president proposes who he would like to, to, to which yeah. justice he would uh, like to appoint on the bench, which then needs to be approved by the legislative branch, by Congress. That's a, it's a very nice example of, of trias politica in, in, in operation. Um, the fact that that doesn't work and that it now doesn't work, it also has to do with how highly politicized um, the United States has become. It has always been highly politicized, yeah. but now it is perhaps a little bit crazy um, because justices in the US Supreme Court are basically asked one thing, and that is where they stand on a very, well, it's not a very old case, but a case decided in the 1970s called Roe v. Wade. It's about the women's rights to choose. In other okay. words, can I choose to have an abortion or not? And this has heavily divided the country. And so the, the most important question, Parliament, so Congress asks um, a Supreme Court justice nominee is, what are, what are your views on Roe v. Wade? And depending on that answer, basically, they, get, they become appointed or not. But the image I have of the United States right now is that the Supreme Court rather plays the role of the legislator as soon as it gets into an area which is, um, well, thought about, right? So it, it, that's, it, all the important policy decisions, it seems at least, I mean, that happens also here with the ECJ, uh, the European Court of Human Rights, um, are made by those Supreme Court decisions. Yeah, but because, of course, you can't always solve them politically. Yeah. And so when there's a political deadlock, some of these decisions come down to the um, the highest court in the land. I mean, DOMA is a very nice example. DOMA is the Defense of Marriage Act. Um, the Defense of Marriage Act is, a, is, a, is, le is, is federal legislation in the United States that describes who, what a marriage is. And it said a marriage is only a union between a man and a woman. And, you know, in this day and age, um, you may have very different views on that. But the president had very different views on that. But the, they couldn't get it to Congress. And so what you then see is that activists start a case and they try to bring the case all the way to the Supreme Court in the hoping to challenge the Supreme Court to say something about this. 
And in this case, the US Supreme Court said, um, this case is unconstitutional. So DOMA is unconstitutional. You can't, you violate the principle of equality mm-hmm. if you say that uh, 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 f- the only formally recognized legal relationship is that between a man and a woman. Because connected to this, it was a federal definition of what is marriage and therefore all the welfare benefits, uh, pensions, etc. they were all connected to that definition. Um, and the same things happen in, 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 in Europe in, at the yeah. national level, at a European level. If we can't figure it out politically, uh, because there's simply too much tension or too much different views, then sometimes it comes in front of the court. And this is where you see in that in the past, the European Court of Justice, the ECJ, as you already uh, mentioned, had has been very, very active. Uh, they've always moved European integration f- further forward um, uh, in times where we politically couldn't do it. And you now see in the last couple of years, they've become very, very careful. Yeah. in doing that. So the judgments are becoming much more, um, uh, 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 they're becoming much more carefully phrased. Going back, I think, to Trias Politica again, so that there's loads of politicians in particular that say, yeah, but listen, we have to maintain this barrier. Legislation is for the legislative branch. Judiciary, they will just, they decide the cases. It's important. But please, let's not go and, as we say, sit on each other's chairs. I'm very happy that you brought that up. If we... Um draw the connection to the levels of law that we just talked about, the national, the European, um, and then look at both, no, of all, uh, at all the courts. We have the European Court of Justice, but then a few years ago, the German Constitutional Court, for example, um, deemed the, uh, the data, uh, not protection, um, data collection directive unconstitutional under German law. But the European Court of Justice said, no. That's fine. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's a very nice example. I think of what we are talking about. I mean, in a way, you know, we are now concretizing what the, the, our question is: what is law? Um, I mean, what is law for the German? Um, uh, we are now talking, of course, about the German um, Bundesverfassungsgericht, eh? so mm-hmm. about the Constitutional Court, um, rather than the, the Supreme Court. Of course, yeah. No, no, but it's just to to, to illustrate the difference because questions of. Verfassung in a way, eh? questions of, of, of the German basic law, of the constitution, are much more political than questions that come before the Bundesgerichtshof, the, 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 the federal Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. Yeah. Um, they, of course, the, the, the German constitutional court is bound first and foremost by the German constitution. This is the rule of law question. According again. to German law. According to German <laughs> law. No, of course, yeah. but they are bound by the German basic law, by the Grundgesetz. And only in a secondary nature, they consider themselves to be bound by um, any European Union legislation mm-hmm. or treaties. But their first role is to protect and defend um, the German basic law. That's why they were created. The European Court of Justice is in a much more difficult position because they, of course, are bound by the treaties, in particular by the Treaty on the European Union and the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, those two. But they also have to take into account the sensitivities of all of the legal systems of the member states. And so the way in which the European Court of Justice approaches a case is very, very different. Um, The the way in which they interpret their rule of law function in a way is very, very different because they have to take into account, let's say, so many more externalities. And so it is very well possible, and this is always difficult to explain to someone who's not a lawyer, but it is possible that the one court, namely the German Constitutional Court, says in the light of the German Constitution, this data regulation is 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 unconstitutional because 
as as you will know, Benedict, but maybe not everyone, the, there's a very big part on privacy in the German basic law, yeah. in, in about the sharing of, of information. And this, of course, um, uh, is historical uh, in a way. I mean, it's the only constitution I know of that really um, uh, uh, regulates these rules so specifically. But it has, of course, to do with, with, with you know, what happened in the 1930s and the 1940s and, and how to overcome that. Um, in an EU context, those considerations play a very, very different role for, for the, from the perspective, to put it very, um, I would say, to put it very provocatively, from the perspective of the European Court of Justice, the German Federal Constitutional Court is only one of the constitutional courts that they deal with. And so from their perspective, and that's what happens if you go one level up, you know, it, beca- it doesn't become only about German law. It becomes German law in context of all the 27 other member states. And in what the European Court of Justice decides, they of course must take into account primarily the sensitivities of the German constitutional context, but it's not the only constitutional context that they deal with. And I think there you see, you know, it, 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 this is very much a what is law type of, of, of problem that we are now talking about because it... it, it That's why we're here. Yeah, <laughs> the, the question is really a lawyer's answer. It, the answer is really a lawyer's answer. It depends. Yeah. Um, when we uh, look at another court, we are sticking with the um, courts that rule um, a lot on recent topics. Um, there's the Court of European... Uh, well, the European Court of Human Rights. What is that? Is that the European Union... Maybe oh, you can uh, uh, elaborate I'm a little bit. I'm happy you asked that. No, that's okay. In as far as I can, um, the European Court of Human Rights comes from an, another international organization called the Council of Europe. And the Council of Europe is a much wider international organization. It was It's basically created again after the Second World War to establish and maintain peace on the European continent. But it, 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 it's different from the European Union that grew out of the European Economic Communities and the European Coal and Steel Community and the Euratom Community. Those three together form the European Union. And they have grown into this very special type of organization. So the European Court of Justice is at the head of what's called a supranational, so above the countries um, um, uh, system, whereas the European Court of Human Rights is I think the I, I'm not entirely I haven't looked it up but the 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 I think the Council of Europe now has a little bit more than 50 uh, what we call contracting states mm-hmm. and this, so that also includes Russia and Ukraine uh, and Turkey um, and well it basically it, it's all the countries of the European Union and then we extend to the east and they taking the continent into account yes exactly and, yeah. no no taking the continent into account exactly and they they the aim is to set a minimum level of protection of fundamental rights. And so the European Court of Human Rights is the highest instance of all of the contracting states. That's what they agree to. When they agree to the European Convention on Human Rights, they agree that after all the national courts have had their say, in case of a human rights violation, the people involved can then appeal to the Strasbourg Court. They are in Strasbourg, the the, the um, European Court of Human Rights. And the European Court of Human Rights will then decide on their um, on their case. But that's very different than what the European Court of Justice does. The European Court of Justice monitors the effective implementation and the effective uh, uh, um, use of, of rules of European Union law. But they don't concern themselves much with um, uh, with human rights violations. This will definitely be a topic of another, another episode, yeah. especially how those two interact um, oh, yeah. in this field. Absolutely. 
Um, we talked a lot about European legislation now, and um, I, I would like to draw the attention to the distinction um, that lawyers do in law between public and private. The Germans go even further that they exclude criminal law from the public part. Um, what, what, what's about that? I mean, you are a private lawyer. Yes. By heart. Well, yes, but I'm also a little bit of a public lawyer. <laughs> because? Well, because I also, I don't... I, I, very, very traditionally, there's a public-private law divide. This is a very traditional way of looking at the at the law. Um, private law being the first. Again, we go back to Roman law. Roman mm -hmm. law is private law. But over time, the state and the organization of the state became more important. And the, basically, the area of law that deals with the state and how the state is organized and the relationship between the state and the citizens, we call public law. And I would immediately include criminal law into um, uh, in, into public law, but I understand the need to, because criminal law is different. It's it's where the state manifests itself against the citizen, um, and it also has to protect citizens against, for example, undue process and these kind of things. So it's I understand, but a similar case you can make for tax law, for example. That's yeah, also okay. a little bit different, but it is all public law in the sense that it's not private law. But mm -hmm. that's a typical private lawyer's answer again. <laughs> the the um. In the last decade, basically, the mix and its fundamental rights that do this, because fundamental rights are generally uh, a manifestation of public law. But of course, they also have their effect on private law. We already talked about, you know, uh, uh, the textile industry and, and clothing companies. Uh, and this is all private law that we're talking about. They make contracts. But if they contract against human rights, against fundamental rights, then public law interferes into private law. Mm -hmm. And this is something, that's why I'm saying I'm a, I'm a private lawyer, but also a public lawyer. I do also do a field, but we should talk about that some other time, perhaps, which is called constitutional property law. Oh, And constitutional yeah. property law deals with the question, if the state should protect your ownership and mm -hmm. how it should protect your ownership. And um, uh, if we want to reform, um, for example... In South Africa, you have all sorts of situations um, where um, there's, no, well, there's not enough land, basically, for the amount of people. And the, the hardcore traditional private law property answer is give everyone a little bit of space. You give them exclusivity of that space with it, and then you let them basically be. But the question in 2016, and that's a fundamental right, it's a constitutional question, if, is that's really the best way to go? Mm -hmm. maybe we shouldn't deal with exclusivity and maintain the exclusivity which is a very private law argument but maybe we should also look at this in terms of sharing and you know maybe people can share things or we can give them access to each other's land huh? yeah let's say i have farmland but you have land on which there's water what if we work together um you know those are uh, questions of equality questions of the fair distribution of wealth um those are constitutional law questions, much more public law questions, much more than private law questions. So what you see, Benedict, I mean, I haven't given you a straight answer yet, I think. Um, <laughs> but the, the, what you see is that, you know, in, in, in modern day law, the distinction is blurred. Yeah. And the best research and therefore also the best law, I think, and the best developments takes, take place in, in between, you know, where, there's, where there are crossovers. Um, between these and um, Europeanization we mentioned is just one example of that that's another example of public law entering private law private law sector yeah we, we talked about the different levels that uh, enact laws even this the courts that um, that somewhat create their own laws again change the laws um, but how are we the citizens affected by that what what do I have do I have duties do I have rights what, are, what is my legal situation 
within all those codes, case law that I can't really even look through anymore. But don't you know, Benedict? Did you, I, I mean, everyone, is, <laughs> everyone is supposed to know the law. That's is fiction, <laughs> fiction number one. You know, you teach law students on day one. No, but it's that's of course not true. I mean, the, the, the that is the essence of the of of the what is law rule of law question. Mm -hmm. So when we then decide we will make rules, those rules create create rights and obligations, rights and duties for us. And we are all supposed to know them. And we are all supposed to abide by them. And we presume, or let's say, now how, how, how should I say this? We, we function on the presumption that this is so. Um, but of course, you don't know everything exactly. Yeah. Um, the, 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 but you know, but, but I, I do have some kind of duty to, to not kill someone, for yeah. example. Well, that's a moral duty, I would say, rather than a legal uh, duty. But yes. both, probably. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's this is where morality. If, if morality transforms itself into rules, it becomes not only a moral duty but also a legal duty. Yeah, but, but to take property again could also be the moral aspect. But I'm also I also do have the duty to not um, interfere with your right exactly. of ownership. Exactly, and that's very much how we lawyers describe then the world that's how we describe society we look at society in terms of rules what can i do and what can i not do and usually that is by analyzing what rights you have what rights i have and then to see how these relate um, to each other so this is it, but now we are this is you're entering the real depth of legal theory here um, <laughs> which is very good um the the the, the if law exists And if you make rules, and how we do that it depends on the system of government that we mm -hmm. choose. But this is, in a way, this is social contract theory. Um, you know, it's very Rousseau-like social contract theory. We, we agree to govern ourselves. And because we all agree that we govern, that's, that's the social contract. Because we all agree to govern ourselves, we are also bound by what we agree. And we don't do this directly. We do this through indirect democracy. So we choose our representatives and the representatives make laws on behalf of us. But because we all consent, we are all bound by it. That is the, you know, that's the positivist way of, of, of approaching this. And therefore you have rights and duties because you implicitly, by participating in society, you, you agree to abide by the law and therefore you agree to, um, I would say, you agree to take on the duties and rights that the law proposes. And you, you know, you have these enclaves, particularly in the United States again, where people do not recognize this. Mm -hmm. You know, where they, if the tax collector comes, they will shoot them off their property. Okay. And, you know, that's a natural law answer here to say, you know, the, the, I have pre-political rights. I will do my own stuff. I don't recognize any social contract type of, so I don't recognize any law. I don't recognize any rights and duties that the, the government might impose on me. You know, that it's all theft. Taxes is theft. <laughs> Stay away from my from my property. That's that's the other extreme. That is a very interesting uh, field. I don't know whether you heard about the Reichsbürger in, in Germany. Yeah. That, um, that uh, if I remember correctly, say that the current basic law is not valid because of some law enacted in the 20s. Yeah. Um, therefore, they do not obey with the laws. They do not want to be prosecuted because they do not. They are no inhabitants of the Federal Republic of Germany, but of the second uh, the Reich of uh, yeah. the German Reich yeah that's a I, I think we, most people would agree that's a little extreme but the, the, the but the, the argument that they make certainly touches directly on this legal philosophical point namely uh, when is law law and when do you have to mm -hmm. abide by it and the basic agreement is based on social contract theory 
is you live on the territory and therefore you abide by the rules. If you don't want to, then move. So the territorial aspect is yeah. the very important I mean, part law there. for the moment. I'm not sure this is going to be like that forever, yeah. but for the moment, and it certainly has not been always, but for the moment, law is connected to territory. And so the, 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 the power, the sovereign power of the state um, uh, is connected to the territory. And hence on that territory, the state exercises its sovereign power, namely legislation, law. Which then means I'm, I'm going on a vacation next week to London. Um, do, uh, I'm bound by the law automatically. I do not have to know anything. No, you're, and you're supposed to know the law too. <laughs> um, but when, when in Rome or when in London in this case, you are bound by English law. Yeah. And because you are on the territory, so it doesn't matter that you are Dutch or German or Italian or French, when you are on the territory of such a country, generally speaking, there are exceptions, you are bound by the territory of the um, uh, the law that applies on that territory. The exception is interesting to mention because sometimes you have what we call extraterritorial application. <laughs> okay. An extraterritorial application is where, for example, in France that exists, if you commit a war crime um, and you, do the, you commit a war crime elsewhere in the world, I can still sue you in front of a French court. Because the French decide by themselves, whether this works or not is completely different. Huh? But the French have decided by themselves, you know, these crimes are so important, we, they shouldn't be restricted by the principle of territoriality. Mm -hmm. And hence, I can sue you in French courts. And if you show up, you can even be prosecuted. But of course, they can't force you to show up. Exactly, and they shouldn't really um, try to. No, but sometimes, get you it, from other yeah, countries. but sometimes it happens because there's symbolic value to be gained. Yeah, but it's not legal. If we take a when we take a comparative look at the European Union, maybe um, to focus a little bit of that, what um, happens around us, around Maastricht, we do have Belgium. We have the Netherlands, we have France, we have uh, Luxembourg even, we have Germany, we have the UK. In influx from everywhere. Um, what would you say is the biggest difference? Would you still say that there is the common law versus civil law thing? Or would you, from your own perspective, say that, of course, the legal systems are different, but this might not necessarily be the most important factor when we take law into account from all the countries? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, of course, there is a big divide between common law and civil law. And the divide is not only in the rules that are different, but the way in which we approach these rules is very different. Right? So the common lawyers reason and think about the law and they talk about the law in a very, very different way than we would do in the civil law. But having said that, the differences between civil law countries are just as big as the differences between civil law and common law. So it's not really, it's it's not necessarily um, uh, 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 that easy, Benedict. I mean, the 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 at the end of the day, I I am I am not too sure that differences between the law really make a huge difference. <laughs> I mean, there's a, in contract law and in, in private law in general, there's a big debate about this for 30 years already. This is the European private law debate. Should mm -hmm. we? Basically, the debate is, if you look at what the Germans did and uh, with von Savigny and the historical school, and then they, they studied Roman law for a while, and then on the basis of that, they drafted a codification for all of the Germanic countries and then united the Germanic countries at one date with one single private law legal system. I mean, the, the argument is old. We were just, before we started, we were talking about Professor Reinhard Zimmermann of the um, uh, Max Planck Institute in, in Hamburg. Um, and he has argued before that we should use that same way of thinking. So the, the, that's it, a Zavigny type, type of thinking. We should use that in European private law. And if we are managing, if we manage to create a common legal scholarship, he would argue, and a common understanding of what the law should be like, 
Then on the basis of that, we can build a new system of private law and we make it applicable to the whole European Union. But this, of course, this is pre-Brexit and, and pre-migration crisis and pre everything. You know, this is a 1980s, 1990s style yeah. um, um, argumentation. Um, but it's very appealing to me um, because I, 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 the way in which I see law, this is where we started. The way in which I would look at the law is you, know, you have a problem and there are different ways to approach that problem. There are different ways to solve that problem. Maybe with the same outcome. Even. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and maybe not. But that's a again, that's a legal political choice. Then let's choose. Let's choose to do it one way or the other way. It doesn't really matter in the end, I think. What's more important is that we agree on what's below the rules, on the, 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 what we sometimes call the ratio behind the rules. Why do we make rules of contract law? Why do we make rules of consumer protection? Why do we have rules of criminal law, etc.? I think most of us agree on, this, on, on, on the basic principles. I don't think there's much difference between Luxembourg, Germany, and the Netherlands in this. Um, the way in which we do it, but again, this is very Maastricht school type of reasoning and this is really something that we do different i think than than particularly for example than many of our german colleagues is to say the technical details are therefore less important if we agree on the big points then the rest is a technicality yeah I'll give you one quick example a contract is concluded between two parties but at some point the contract becomes binding upon the party so that is what the law does the law says you can agree whatever you want within the limits of the law Um, and if you reach agreement, at some point the agreement becomes binding, so it becomes a contract. But when is that? Is that the moment that the parties reach consensus? So somewhere in our minds, that's French law. Or is it uh, to say, well, they need to um, show to the outside world, at least to the other party, their willingness to be bound. So it, we call that intention and the declaration of intention. That's Dutch and German law. Or do you say, no, they really need to do something so that also third parties, innocent bystanders can see that they are sincere in their willingness to be bound. So they need to give them consideration for that contract. That's English law. Well, we would reason, I would reason, those are technical differences. The the, the, the agreement is there, namely the magic moment when the contract, this is what we call it. The magic moment is when the contract becomes binding upon the parties is when they agree. But how that agreement actually should manifest itself is then it's a question for me of secondary importance. And so if you, uh, if you take that type of approach, then the differences between legal systems are, they, 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 they come in a different light, they come in a different perspective. And you can approach these by, um, you can approach these by, 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 by looking at these similarities rather than the dissimilarities. But this, I have to stress, not everyone agrees to. You know, I, I have a colleague in Münster whose name is Professor Niels Janssen who always calls me a codifier. So this is the other. <laughs> but you would rather than take the friendly approach and say, um, we are not very different. We are similar, but yeah. we just approach it. Yes, exactly. We way. are similar. I'm, I really believe in that. If you would um, think a month back and there is a first year student um, coming to you and asks you for a very short answer, one, two sentences. What is law? What would you now answer after our short discussion? Not so short discussion. But I mean, what I would answer is a new student who would come. Let me see. I would say, um, you know, the law, what is law? Law is the set of rules by which we regulate our whole society, everything that we do. Thank you very much. Um, Bram Ackermans is an associate professor in the European private, uh, for European private law at the Maastricht University here in the Netherlands. And um, we will definitely hear each other again for one of the next episodes. So thank you very much. No, I will be delighted. Thank you so much, Benedict.